Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. They were just here the other day. And you can find out more. Give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, constitutional scholar. We'll be talking more about uh, the abortion law. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa. He's a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is February the 16th, and on this day in 1804, during the First Barbary War, U.S. Lieutenant Stephen Decatur led a military mission that famed British Admiral Horatio Nelson calls the most daring act of the age. In June 1801, President Thomas Jefferson ordered U.S. naval vessels to the Mediterranean Sea in protest of the continuing raids against U.S. ships by pirates from the Barbary states, Morocco, Algeria, Tunis, and Tripolinia. American sailors are often abducted along with the captured booty and ransomed back to the United States at an exorbitant price. After two years of minor confrontation, sustained action began in June 1803 when a small U.S. Expeditionary force attacked Tripoli Harbor in uh, present-day Libya. In October 1803, the U.S. frigate Philadelphia ran around aground near Tripoli and was captured by uh, the gunboats, Tripoli and gunboats. The American feared that the well-constructed warship would be both formidable, in addition to the Tripolian Navy, Navy and, a, and an innovative model for building future uh, frigates. Hoping to prevent the Barbary pirates from gaining the military advantage, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur led a daring expedition to Tripoli Harbor to destroy the captured American vessel on February the 16th, 1804. After disguising himself and his men as Maltese sailors, Decatur's force of 74 men, which included nine U.S. Marines, sailed into Tripoli Harbor on a small two-mast ship. The Americans approached the USS Philadelphia without drawing fire from Tripoli shore guns, boarded the ship, and attacked its uh, crew, capturing or killing all but two. After setting fire to the frigate, Decatur and his men escaped without a loss of a single American. The Philadelphia subsequently exploded when its gunpowder reserve was lit by the uh, spreading fire. Six months later, Decatur returned to uh, Tripoli Harbor as part of a larger American offensive and emerged as the hero again during the so-called Battle of the Gunboats, a Navy battle that was so hand-to-hand combat between the Americans and uh, those of Tripoli. Amazing story. So if you hear uh, the Marine from the shores of Tripoli, that's what that's all about. Great story. Great history. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, leads his potential Democrat challengers in a new survey that puts his overall job approval rating at 53% which is unchanged from a year ago. Among the three Democrats vying to take on DeSantis, Congressman Charlie Crist, chain gang Charlie, remember him, used to be our governor, chameleon, has the most support in Democrat uh, uh, primary, according to Mason-Dixon poll, which found that 44% of Florida Democrats back Crist, while 27% uh, back Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, and 3% support Annette Tadeo. A significant number of Democrats, 26%, are undecided. The survey indicates that each of the Democrats currently running for governor would struggle against DeSantis. Mason Dixon's poll memo says DeSantis has a decent cushion over the Democrat rivals right now. His job performance is viewed favorable by 60% male voters, 61% of white voters, and 56% of voters age 65 or older. Half of Hispanic voters also approve, half, can you imagine that, half approve of the governor's job performance, which is noteworthy in a state with a large Hispanic population that can be pivotal in deciding elections. He's done a great job, and it's just fortunate that uh, the electorate certainly understands that. Well, President Joe Biden on Tuesday delivered an aggressive speech against Russian President Vladimir Putin, warning him against uh, not to invade Ukraine. 
He acknowledged messaging from the Russian defense minister that they would send troops home from the border of Ukraine, but said he remained skeptical. That would be good, but we have not yet uh, verified that, he said during his speech. Biden also spoke directly to the people of Russia, repeating that the United States and NATO were not a threat. The president recalled that the U.S. uh, uh, United States fought with Russia in World War II in a war of necessity, but warned them against choosing to pick a fight with neighboring country. If Russia attacks Ukraine, it will be a war of choice or a war without a cause or a reason, Biden said. He warned Putin of widespread condemnation from Western countries of any decision on his part to attack. It's about standing for what we believe in and the future we want for our world, he said. The president acknowledged that Americans could face higher energy costs if Russia did invade. Biden promised not to send armed servicemen into Ukraine, but said he would supply them with military equipment and supplies to help them defend themselves and bolster neighboring NATO countries. But he warned Russia will not uh, not to hurt American citizens in the Ukraine, promising to react if they did. Biden said the United States and the West have a responsibility to defend Ukraine's borders and freedoms from more aggressive Russia. If we do not stand for freedom... Well, where it is at risk today, we will certainly pay a steeper price tomorrow, Biden said. Of course, that applies right now to what's happening in the United States with our borders and so much more. But uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting story because with so much going wrong here in the United States, my view of this, and I could be wrong, my view of this is that uh, the president basically is fomenting a lot of fear and uh, saber-rattling right now. He's, uh, the Russians are saying, hey, we're not going to attack. Ukraine's saying that they're not going to attack. He's saying, well, you better not attack. And once this whole thing is over and uh, they don't attack, Trump's, our, uh, Biden's going to take credit for it. See, they didn't attack. We, attack. we took a strong position. Unbelievable. It's all about politics for uh, Biden, unfortunately, and not policy. Well, the State Department advised Americans in Ukraine to evacuate after U.S. intelligence warned Russia is preparing to invade before the end of the Winter Olympics. The House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Tuesday was asked why the State Department told Americans fleeing Ukraine through Poland to show proof of COVID vaccination when Poland doesn't even have the requirement in place. Think about that. The State Department over the weekend told Americans evacuating Poland that they need to show proof of COVID vaccination. Just unbelievable. Who's make this? It's kind of like a Chinese fire drill. Unbelievable. Why would they require a passport? a vaccine passport to get out of Ukraine and go to Poland when Poland doesn't even have that requirement. Makes no sense. Couldn't be that much of an emergency, do you think? Well, producer prices increased a staggering 9.7% for the year, ending in January, according to a report on producer costs by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, meaning inflation hovered near the highest pace on record. The high numbers in Tuesday's uh, producer price index report eclipsed Predictions by forecasters that are near the highest in the gauge's 11-year history after the PPI rose by 9.8% in December. News came just days after a report from the month of January following consumer prices increased by 7.5%, the fastest annual rate in four decades. The inflationary pressures are adding to President Joe Biden's mounting political concerns heading into the midterm elections. Ergo... Let's do some saber-rattling and uh, talk about Ukraine. The PPI engages the wholesale index price of goods, which are inevitably passed down to consumers. Over the past month, producer prices have increased by 1%, double the consensus expectations of 0.5% jump. Tuesday's report will put fire to the feet of the Federal Reserve officials who are planning to hike interest rates for the first time in years as early as next month in a scramble to contain inflation. Don't like interest rates going up, but boy, they need to do something, don't they? Well, President Joe Biden's approval declined 41 points among Hispanic respondents since being inaugurated last year, according to the, uh, it's called a Civics Rolling Job Approval Average. Biden's job approval among Hispanic respondents last January was 64% compared to only 25% who disapproved of his job as president at the time. Of course, he was only on the job for a day. There was also a 10% who had neither approved or disapproved. The president's high approval with Hispanic respondents gave the president a high net approval of 39%. However, 
Biden has gone through a year of bad policies and very few political wins since then. The majority of Biden's legislative agenda was stuck in the Senate after barely being passed in the House. After a year in office, Biden's job approval among Hispanic respondents is now stuck to a 45% disapproval as of Monday. In comparison, there's only 43% who approve of him, which is also a 21% freefall since his inauguration. There were 12% who neither approved nor disapproved. Biden's net approval was uh, brought into the negatives from his latest poll numbers. As of Monday, his net approval rating sits at a negative 2%, which is down 41% since he was inaugurated. So interesting, isn't it? Wouldn't it be ironic that he's bringing all these Hispanics across the border uh, that only to find out they're going to vote Republican? That would be kind of an interesting turn of events, wouldn't it? Well, a group of Republican senators is threatening to withhold support for funding the government by a Friday shutdown deadline unless they get a vote on defunding remaining federal vaccine mandates, renewing a stand they took ahead of last deadline in December. In an open Dear Colleague letter on Monday, Senators Mike Lee of Utah, Roger Marshall of Kansas, Cynthia Loomis of uh, Wyoming, Mike Braun of Indiana and Rand Paul of Kentucky, Ted Cruz of Texas, stated their intention to oppose a stopgap government funding measure unless their demands are met. The House last week passed a continuing resolution to fund the government at current levels through March the 11th, and the Senate must pass it before the end of the day on Friday to avoid a government shutdown. Republicans and Democrats uh, budget negotiators hope to reach an agreement on the fiscal year 2022 omnibus spending bill before the new March 11th deadline, setting the first new spending levels under the Biden administration. Some Republicans previously mounted a pressure campaign among about vaccine mandates before the last stopgap measure in December. That resulted in a vote on an amendment from Lee and Marshall to fund vaccine mandates was failed. 48 to 50, but things are a little bit different now with Lujan uh, recovering from his stroke. He's from New Mexico. The Biden administration withdrew its vaccine or test requirement for private businesses with more than 100 employees after a Supreme Court blocked the rule. But other federal vaccine mandates are taking effect or are being challenged in courts affecting federal employees, contractors, health care workers, and military members. History will bear record on whether we choose to endure tyranny or oppose it. In this pivotal moment, the senator wrote in the letter, we invite you to stand with us and oppose the CR, a continuing resolution, until it explicitly defunds the implementation and enforcement of these mandates. At a minimum, we need to take a vote on this before funding their enforcement. The livelihoods of and personal freedoms of millions of Americans are at stake. I certainly agree with that. We may end up with the uh, trucker's convoy, freedom convoy, coming through America as well. We'll see how this all turns out. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. 
Higher Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way towards keeping seniors connected in the community and with each other. Serving all of Collier County, the Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding resources and services that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers, empowering seniors to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Programs are offered free of charge in a safe, welcoming space and focus on fellowship, enrichment and wellness, continuing education, and meeting basic needs through offerings such as daily hot lunch, health screenings, and counseling services. So whether you're looking for referrals to services or a vibrant place to make friends, enjoy community support, or learn something new, Collier Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center is your Collier Senior Center. To learn more about programs and services, please visit CollierSeniorResources.org. That's CollierSeniorResources.org. Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4534. That's 252-3534. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and I hope you'll find out more by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. You can also download the app, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's an author, he's a constitutional scholar, and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual liberty, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. So there's been a lot of attention on uh, the abortion issue in the Supreme Court and big cases that have been coming up. We want to continue that conversation with you from the last couple of weeks. What's been the impact of the Texas law? It's been actually a, a virtual bar to abortions in, in Texas, um, particularly if you're less affluent and you can't afford to travel uh, out of state to get a, an abortion. Uh, the, the law covers any person who causes or facilitates the death of the child in the womb at any time, including uh, providers of transportation or even providers of money to help you get an abortion. Hmm. Uh, and even persons who instruct women on how to get self on how to do self abortions, although frankly that that part of it I think runs afoul of the First Amendment free speech protections. Uh, once this Texas law is enforced, it can obviously be challenged. So uh, there are a number of post enforcement challenges pending. Uh, there was one case uh, filed by a disbarred Arkansas lawyer against a San Antonio physician who performed an abortion despite Texas law. But it, it takes quite a while for cases like that to um, wind their way through the courts. And in the meantime, uh, the law is having a chilling effect on abortions that would otherwise uh, be legal under Roe v. Wade or under Planned Parenthood versus uh, Casey. So the threshold question becomes, since it takes so long before the law is enforced and, and litigation ensues. The threshold question is how do you stop the law before it's enforced? And that's what the courts are grappling with. Mm. So uh, what's the legal criterion for a pre-enforcement challenge? Well, it boils down to a matter of standing. That is, who has the right to sue? Who can they sue and when? And uh, my personal view, by the way, is that the mere enactment of this law, even prior to its enforcement, is causing injury to uh, persons who desire or provide abortions. And that's simply a matter of fact. It's not a matter of whether you're pro-abortion or anti-abortion. Um, accordingly, because injury is the prerequis prerequisite to legal standing, I would argue that legal action against the state of Texas should be allowed. That's it's another question of who prevails. But it should be allowed to go forward. Otherwise, you could have similar legislation authorizing uh, private lawsuits that are patterned on the Texas statute, and that could be used to circumvent other constitutionally guaranteed rights, uh, for example, guns, and they already have such a, um, a law in California, or religious exercise. So 
it's true that there are a lot of these so-called bounty hunter laws that approve payment to people that help the government. But the Texas law actually goes a step further because bounty hunters assist the state in carrying out the state's legitimate function. Mm -hmm. This Texas Heartbeat Act permits private parties to do what the government, the state of Texas, clearly could not do under Roe v. Wade unless and until Roe v. Wade were overturned. So interesting. So what's the Supreme Court said about the Texas law? Well, the the court kicked the can down the road, as they do often, in two different opinions uh, on December 10th. The first was U.S. versus Texas, which addressed the single question of pre-enforcement standing. And the the Justice Department had argued that, uh, you know, this law bars federal agencies from performing certain abortion-related duties uh, that implement Roe v. Wade, such as making abortions available to federal inmates and members of the of the military. Um, and then furthermore, the Justice Department said that the law subverts the mechanisms that Congress designed uh, for plaintiffs to block unconstitutional laws before they're enforced. But neither of those arguments got much traction. And in an unsigned opinion, the Supreme Court said it never should have agreed to hear the case in the first place, hmm. and the, and it sent it back to the case back to the Fifth Circuit to flesh out this whole dispute about standing. And the Fifth Circuit, in turn, has deferred to the Texas Supreme Court to rule on an issue of state law. So as a result, the Texas Heartbeat Act remains in force at least uh, for now. It seems like kind of a hot potato. They're just throwing it back and forth. <laughs> That's right. So how about the second Texas case, the one brought by an, an abortion provider? Well, in the second case, um, the plaintiffs understood that they couldn't sue the state or the Texas Attorney General because the state and the Attorney General can't enforce the law. That's the way the law is written. It can only be enforced by private parties. But they thought maybe they could sue some state officials who would be performing administrative duties uh, related to these lawsuits. Mm. And that strategy had mixed success. Uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion 5-4 over a dissent by Roberts and the three liberals. Uh, He said that you can't sue these state court clerks who docket disputes. You can't sue the judges who resolve the disputes because they haven't yet caused injury to anybody Mm -hmm. uh, because the suits haven't yet gotten to them. And ditto for suing private parties, because the parties that were named in the suit submitted sworn declarations that they had no plans to file uh, litigation. But he didn't shut down the plaintiffs completely. Uh, In a portion of his opinion, joined by everybody except Thomas, he ruled that you could have a pre-enforcement suit against state officials whose job it is to revoke the licenses of doctors, nurses, pharmacies, and clinics if they violate the law. So that's one option that's available to plaintiffs in Texas. But even that option is only available if the Texas Supreme Court first rules that these state officials are, in fact, authorized to revoke uh, licenses. So the only other options are a pre-enforcement challenge in state court, Mm -hmm. not federal court. And, of course, Texas state courts have been inhospitable to abortion litigation. Or wait till the law is actually enforced and you have a post-enforcement litigation when somebody could actually be prosecuted. Yeah, you know, Bob, it seems to me that the uh, elephant in the room is uh, uh, when does abortion become murder? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the big that's issue exactly that's, right. that, that hasn't been addressed. So there's also a Supreme Court uh, case pending from uh, Mississippi. What's the issue there? Yeah, that's the big one, and that's uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The law in Mississippi would ban almost all abortions after 15 weeks, uh, with narrow exceptions for medical emergencies or a severe fetal abnormality. Um, The law was passed by the legislature. Um, It hasn't been enforced because there's been a legal challenge stopping it temporarily. But at oral argument, uh, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, he, he, he seemed to want to compromise. He tried to circumvent the key holding of of Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is plainly based on viability. And viability is deemed to be roughly 24 weeks into the pregnancy. Instead, Roberts said, look, the issue before us today is whether 15 weeks 
is too long. So he suggested that 15 weeks for the mother to make a decision might not be an undue burden. Of course, there are mothers who might disagree with that, given the amount of planning involved and personal and family and financial hardship. But in any event, Roberts was apparently pushing to uphold the Mississippi Hmm. law, but under an undue burden standard rather than the viability standard uh, that was uh, the court's uh, touchstone in the the Casey uh, case. Interesting. Whether he succeeds is yet to be determined. So uh, was Roberts able to persuade other members of the uh, uh, Supreme Court? Well, the other the other justices didn't seem interested in this middle ground. Uh, Alito, he 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 made it clear. He said, "Look, the only really options we have are reaffirm Roe or overrule Roe." So, assuming that Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch uh, are prepared to overrule Roe, then Roberts would need support from all three liberals plus uh, either Barrett or Kavanaugh. But neither of them said much. That would indicate they sign on to this compromise. So my view is that the Mississippi law can't be sustained under Roe v. Wade or uh, Casey. And at least five justices think that both those cases were wrongly decided. So what's that mean? It means that the the only lifeline for Roe and Casey is this doctrine of stare decisis, which is basically respect for the past a precedent, a deference to settle law and a recognition that millions of Americans have relied on prior court decisions, even if they're wrong, and conform their behavior uh, to the dictates of those uh, decisions. Now, personally, uh, I'd like to see that outcome because otherwise we're going to continue to have further polarization, a strain on the social fabric from this issue, disrespect for the court, and more immersion Uh, in the culture wars. Uh, About a dozen Republican states have already uh, passed these trigger laws that would make abortion unlawful immediately if Roe is overturned. And there are 15 other states in D.C. that have local laws to protect abortion rights, mainly by reprising uh, Casey's viability standard. So we don't know the outcome, but it's contentious. We'll have an answer by June 30th of this year. Yeah, so interesting. Bob, I really appreciate your commentary on this. It seems like Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, is asking the question to himself, why can't we just all get along? <laughs> yes, that is exactly what he's doing. It's Bob Lee. My uh, theory of uh, jurisprudence. Right, John, I believe you're the chairman of the Cato Institute. Cato.org, by the way, is the website. Please check it out. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. You as well. Thank you. All right. Coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. 
Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a performing arts in downtown Naples. It's going to be absolutely beautiful, and you can find out more and get tickets. Visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa. Andy's a professor. He's also the author of Josephus of Oz. Terrific read, off-topic for today's discussion. But, Andy, genuinely appreciate you joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Andy. You know, there's so much going on in the world right now in the United States. Uh, just uh, just take a step back and ask you, get your thoughts. Well, that's it's difficult. We get together once a week, you and I and your and your audience. So uh, so much happens in a day, much much less a whole week. So I'm going to try to at least touch on some of the major issues that have uh, that are occurring right now and have taken place over that time period, Bob. And so I'm going to do this as a series of uh, daily things, and then it'll it'll have significance in most cases. Some will just be uh, light, but the, most of it will be serious stuff, Bob. First of all, the good news. The good news is the there are record cold temperatures in Alaska. Uh, the sustained lows are far be- far below their uh, their normal uh, winter averages, and the Arctic ice uh, is increasing rapidly, and it's uh, back to about 96 percent of its uh, last two decades. Uh, norms. So the ice has recovered. It's recovering rapidly. Uh, and I think this is this is good news. Certainly, uh, certainly if we're uh, offering some rebuttal, strong rebuttal to the, the, the climate change and global warming scenarios. The only downside of that, Bob, of course, is that uh, if this is ushering in an ice age, I'm not predicting that, uh, then of course, this is, a, this is a negative. The only thing we could probably predict with any reason thought over any time frame is the return of the ice age, which will just about destroy all of civilization. So uh, that, that's no immediate concern because the time frame is so is so extended. But uh, in terms of uh, warming, uh, damaging the planet or the uh, the life forms on this planet, there's no indication from any historical time period where increasing temperatures have done anything but help the the uh, the life. Of life communities on this planet bob i mean this whole climate change issue i mean to me it's the tower of babel type of thing there people are trying to inf- uh, inflict some sort of correction on god's green earth <laughs> you gotta be kidding in, in another three or four thousand years we're probably going to have a sheet of ice over us about six miles thick <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's if there is a, uh, a likelihood and it's not a strong likelihood in this short time frame, of course, but but that is the that is the likelihood. Uh, it's another one of these issues where no matter how much countervailing evidence can be brought to bear against the subject, uh, the left, particularly the left, obviously, uh, uh, insists on going with their original mythological narrative. And I think uh, climate change and global warming uh, is one of those. It's right. not the only one. Certainly there are there are so many. Uh, some bad news for today, as, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing for, for most who know the man, uh, P.J. O'Rourke passed yesterday at the age of 64. Now, uh, for many, that may not be significant, but it was O'Rourke that somewhat inspired me back in the latter part of the 70s with his writing for National Lampoon. And then I, I read his books, Eat the Rich and A Parliament of Horrors. And, uh, you know, my writing has a style. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a good style, but it's a style. It's my style. And most of that has been a replication to a certain extent of uh, being the uh, being inspired by P.J. O'Rourke. So uh, his passing had a had a personal connotation to me. Uh, another piece of bad news. I thought it was really bad news for today is a study done uh, which identified that 40 percent of all American Gen Zers, 40 percent, huge number, identified themselves as LGBTQ people. 40 <laughs> percent. Those are the people born between 84 and 2002, uh, which is an amazing number. They, the real number obviously should be someplace in the single digits. What this reflects is the ability, the, 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 the plasticity of this group of people in terms of their uh, willingness to yield to the media and social media pressures, uh, and in fact, moving in that direction. 
uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the number of 30% for those who identify themselves as strong Christians in the Zen uh, category have also identified themselves as being LGBTQ members. So hmm. um, th these are these are big numbers. Uh, that whole generation, the Gen Zers, uh, is somewhat responsive to Voltaire's comment that the perfect is the enemy of the good. Now, what that means, and I think it, it, it may not need explanation, is that as you reject the good, and that's what we've done in this country, and the Gen Zers have led this, you reject the good in pursuit of the perfect, the perfect is unobtainable, and in the meantime, you've rejected the good that preceded it. So that's pretty much uh, the best way to define the whole Gen Z uh, um, uh, identification area. And I think this is this is bad news as we project that out further uh, into this nation's future, Bob. Yeah, such an interesting comment. I had no idea the numbers were that high, but I think it demonstrates how much in influence just a, a Repeating a common message over and over again can lead to the uh, indoctrination of young people and, well, I, I and old people for main, that. Matter. The main reason I brought it up as bad news is that uh, the ability to create that plasticity in a whole generation of Americans, 40 uh, percent of them being, a, again, a very significant number, uh, is, uh, is indicative of, of the potentials of what they might be able to influence in the future. So it's a real concern to me, and it should be of concern to every American. I have no inherent problem with the LGBT community. It's nothing to do with that. It only has to do with the percentage identifying themselves in that category, which is obviously far beyond what natural numbers should should produce, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Moving to some what I call for this, for today at least, the comedic relief of the day, Senator John Kennedy. And you, I'm sure you heard this oh, remark. And speaking about Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, uh, he said about Trudeau, if you're going to be a smart butt, and I'm using a euphemism there, you first have to be smart. I, th I thought that was <laughs> spot on in terms of Kennedy. And he's he's just so uh, ripe with these kind of uh, Louisiana-based based sayings. Yeah. Uh, another somewhat comedic relief, too, I, I have down as, uh, as Joe Biden saying his maternal grandfather, Ambrose Finnegan, was an All-American football player at Santa Clara. Now, Santa Clara never had any All-Americans in anything until <laughs> long after Ambrose was gone. And there's no one ever been named uh, Ambrose Finnegan that has ever been an All-American in any sport, ever. <laughs> now, this, this is comedic relief as far as I'm concerned, but it also highlights a, a dramatic problem with, with our president of, of the many. Yeah. The man's willingness to fabricate stories to create out of out of out of nothingness uh, these these elaborations uh, on it's one thing to elaborate and puff a situation. Uh, President Trump was somewhat guilty of that. He was a salesman, so he puffed. That is not what what Biden does. He lies in uh, in, a, in a in a totality, Bob. He does. Uh, if we take this now to a serious circumstance, where doesn't he lie? Where isn't he lying? And I think that that is a serious question that must be asked with a man who has his finger on the nuclear trigger. Uh, you are so absolutely correct about that. My goodness, I mean the plagiarism—you just go back in history and what he's done. I, I think he's probably lost all familiarity and understanding of the line between truth and lies. I think he just basically says whatever comes to his mind. Well, I, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, it's it, where I pointed it out. It was it's, it's insignificant about Ambrose Finnegan, of course, but uh, it becomes significant. Let's let's just take the issue of the uh, what's going on in Ukraine. And, you know, is is there fabrication going on in Ukraine? I I, I don't know what the story is in Ukraine because and I'm going to get back to this later. The fabrications that have come out of the U.S. government pertaining to the provocations for war uh, have been dramatic. Uh, probably the last war that we went into without those fabrications was Korea yeah. since then. And I'll point, as I say, I'll point this out later, but the fabrications have been ongoing, consistent and, and uh, universal in terms of how we have uh, created artificial provocations to go to war. Um, I have two other things I, I want to add. One uh, before, be, Andy, before you leave uh, Ukraine, though, I've, I failed to mention to our listeners and wish them a happy Unity Day. Of course, the uh, president of Ukraine has declared today a national holiday in Ukraine. <laughs> to, you know, to, again, it's it's still a, a quite a, the, the 
the president of Ukraine still doesn't see the, the threat of Russia being... No, he being doesn't. Threatened. I mean, this whole thing is fabricated. It's a lot of saber-rattling, in my opinion, to try and draw attention away from all the problems that we have here in the United States. Don't There's think it's going to work. There's every reason to believe that's true. There is nothing that is... Uh, I, I just recently heard, whether it's true or not, that the Russian officials have announced that uh, certain military units have been withdrawn from the Ukraine border. Yeah. Um, I don't think this situation was ever... Uh, uh, existential in any in any way, but it could have been made into such. Anytime you have the, the world's two largest nuclear powers who are in even the vaguest potential of getting into direct confrontation, this is a serious threat to the world. And I think that this has been stoked by the United States. Uh, I don't think that Putin has done much to defuse that. Uh, on the other hand, I think this has been a United States fabrication uh, from the word go. It is built around, in my estimation, uh, the constant Russia, 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 Trumpy, uh, ever since the early advents of the Trump administration. And I think it's continuing right now into the discussions of you. Absolutely, Andy. And we're in violent agreement on that. Hey, Andy, I want to give our uh, advertisers, you support the show, and I'm so grateful for that, an opportunity to get out their message a little bit. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you check out the website. Well, among other things, providing policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. The website is thefga.org. Continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back with you, Bob. Thank you, Andy. So uh, let's continue on with your uh, th- thoughts and what you're thinking about here currently in the uh, all the well, news as, going on. As you know, we've known each other long enough. I, I try to uh, dig behind the scenes and try to understand things that perhaps have not been identified uh, elsewhere. I, I don't do that to be merely provocative, but to try to understand things that, that may be affecting the outcome. So I, my probing question for the day is, which is the tail and which is the dog? Mm. And that means, Bob, in my estimation, does the media do the left's bidding or does the left do the media's bidding? Hmm. In other words, who is controlling the uh, the flow of, of, of realities in America? Does the media uh, uh, 
create the the agenda and it's just followed by the left or does the left create the agenda that the media follows that, that question may not seem one that has to be asked in america but when i look at uh, the pressures and the powers that be uh, i i can almost make the case that the media is the driving force and the left merely reflects the media's positions bob mm, that's so well i would uh, my knee-jerk reaction to your question would be that uh, clearly is the uh, uh, progressive agenda which the media supports so i would think that the communication probably runs downhill to the media from the uh, uh, political elite I, I think that's the way any rational person would think about it but of course i don't necessarily think about it that way <laughs> I, I think we we have to sometimes consider that uh, there are other things at play and so as i look for a question like that it's it's to try to consider uh, the role of the media, and we, we mm -hmm. all know that what you just said is absolutely true, Bob, and I can't, uh, obviously I can't deny that. Uh, but I think we have to see the media serving a bigger role as being not just somehow an enforcer of the left's positions, but to a large extent, the creators of those positions. Yeah. I just think it's worth it's worth considering. My next question is what I call, Bob, the probing cultural question of the day. You know that's my uh, my thing to consider culture. And here's the question, and it's not going to be met with any wide-scale acceptance, obviously, because you'll hear it, and I think you'll find that to be true. Is there something seriously wrong with the effeminate white male nations around the world? Is there something seriously wrong with the effeminate white male nations around the world? What are those nations, Bob? America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, France. If I name the effeminized nations of the world, dominated to a large extent by white male or, uh, politicians, I think we can see there is a dramatic tendency right now towards authoritarianism, towards the dismissal of law. We can see common characteristics. And I'm, the, I'm offering the, the, the probing cultural qu question. Is that a derivative of the effeminization of white males around the world? Uh, that question has been explored. That particular question about the effeminization of white males, whether or not that is causal in terms of what we're seeing in America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and France, that is open to debate. But I think that is a question that at least should be considered by people who are concerned with cultural issues, Bob. So uh, to, isn't that a subset, though, of identity politics? Isn't that pretty much uh, uh, downstream from identity politics? It's downstream from identity politics. Of course, I would make the, the, the whole issue of identity politics and a feminized notion of, 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 of life to start with. Uh, if we look at the American military right now, not only are they going towards uh, equality, uh, inclusion, and diversity, uh, but right now they're moving towards a, a total focus uh, towards the, the armed forces being directed at the elimination of global warming. Uh, so I think we can see this, this whole notion of a feminization, and I'm, that has nothing to do with women per se. It has to do with characteristics generally ascribable to women. I, I think we can see this taking place. I think we can certainly see it with Trudeau. I think we can see it with uh, with Joe Biden and maybe his influence per se uh, with with Bill Biden. Uh, we can see it uh, obviously in the in the harsh uh, autocratic positions of New Zealand and Australia uh, as it pertains to uh, to uh, COVID, and we can see that with Macron in France also. So there is something going on that seems to be different uh, in, in its totality in these nations around the world that seems to be uh, happening, happening in concert. And as a, someone who studies culture, I am trying to consider what is happening that is causing that, Bob? Yeah, well, I don't know the answer, but I offered my my temporary uh, solution to that question. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would also suggest the globalization of America and what of of the of of countries around the world, and the whole notion of kind of the great reset going on right now. A lot of this uh, masking and uh, the mandates and all those types of things, and uh, kind of neutralization of uh, of. Uh, the rule of law, I think, has to do with uh, the Great Reset. Well, and, and again, I think we're using the words that are they're being used right now to describe what is going on in the world. Um, if we look, if I suggest, and I think this is a sound suggestion, that all of these are derivatives of, of cultural variations in nations and then collectively around the world, yeah. we, we still have to consider what is causing that collectivized process, almost simultaneous collectivized process to take place. And, and that's, a, that's a real interest to me as, a, as an academic. 
Um, and I think ultimately it, it may not change anything, obviously, but uh, it should be considered as a uh, as a as a, uh, a stimulus to what has been going on. Bob. Well, so let's talk uh, a little bit about yeah, the sure. evidence of, of the feminization of males around the world. Tell, tell us about what you see that caused you to, uh, to raise the question. Well, if we if we just look at the male attributes and the uh, the uh, I would say the willful destruction of of manliness per se that has been well documented. Yeah. Uh, manhood in, in the United States and around the world has been diminished in its value. That all the attributes that are normally attributed to men have been uh, called uh, described described as negative, and the the feminine characteristics have been described as as useful and beneficial. So if we just look at what has been measured already, the diminished uh, uh, value of, of of the male characteristics and the expanded value of the feminine characteristics, and expand that to the, the to their applications, I, I think the case can be made that the well, the case I just made actually, Bob. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. I, I think you're absolutely right about that, and uh, I mean you can actually see it in TV commercials or talk about uh, culture and how uh, the male is usually kind of a doofus. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, if he's there at all, he's, he's a doofus, absolutely. <laughs> and, and needing support of women to, in order to make a good decision and get on with his life. And so I think that's absolutely true, though. It's so interesting. So, and, and if he is there in a commercial, he's typically married to an African-American woman and they have an Asian child. It's an amazing <laughs> phenomenon. I mean, it's just, it's just so absurd. You know, it's a good thing that most white males are not sensitive and don't really care about these things. If we were a typical group, we would be outraged. But of course, we don't. We don't really care about it, you know. It just it just comedic relief for us. It's, it's nonsense, Bob. It is such nonsense. Well, maybe it's just the feminization of us right now. We just don't stand up for ourselves. <laughs> well, may, maybe so. Maybe so. I I don't I, I don't I don't feel that way. I think it's it's a manly trait to not be overly sensitized to uh, to silliness, and I I think that's. That's something that I try to avoid. Sometimes I'm I'm sucked into it myself. I guess. But I, so, I, I will say this though. You know, I, I do want to, as we're transitioning here to a different topic, I do want to remind our listeners that your columns. I don't publish, publish all of them primarily prim primarily because of my neglect and uh, uh, not being organized. But uh, I've just posted three of your columns on my website. If you go to correct me if I'm wrong on uh, BobHarden.com, you'll find three of uh, Andy's latest columns. And uh, one of them reminds me of a Mark Twain quote. He said, once defined patriotism as supporting your country at all times and your government when it deserves it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is no doubt if there's one point that could be extracted from my last two or three columns, it is that one. We must come to the realization and accept that the government is not our country. Right. We can be absolutely opposed to the government. Of course, we must maintain legality. I think that's a requirement that all citizens have to fulfill. But on the other hand, when we talk about words like respect, uh, adherence to their prods that are not uh, generated by law, no, the government is not my country. When I say I love America, that uh, may or may not include the government. Uh, as it in, back during the Trump administration, for me personally, uh, it did. Uh, I thought the Trump administration reflected the values of historical America, and I thought that uh, it was it was fine to talk about the government at that point as being America. Uh, it rarely is that. I think uh, the Trump administration was a a rare moment in, a, in at least recent American history, Bob. Absolutely. So what are your thoughts? I mean, this Durham uh, uh, investigation is now demonstrating the fact that the, the president, uh, Donald Trump, was not only investigated and, and spied on during his campaign, but also while he was in the White House. I mean, this is criminal behavior beyond the pale. It's unbelievable. Not not only criminal behavior, this may be one of the biggest political stories, not only in American history, but in world history. Uh, this this makes uh, Watergate seem like a parking ticket. Uh, here we have a political candidate who, using external operatives and governmental operatives, has not only penetrated candidate Trump, but President Trump in the White House and in his private residencies. Uh, this has never happened before. We hear all the time, well, this is typical for American politics. No, this has never happened before. If we add to that, the federal bureaucracies have known about it, have ignored it or supported it, one or the other, or both. Uh, this, is, this is a dramatic story. 
and the Durham reports have received almost no play in the in the leftist media. What we're talking about, ABC, CBS, NBC, or the CNN, MSNBC uh, duo, uh, there's almost nothing being said about the Durham reports. And it is one of the most penetrating and important stories in American history, Bob. There's no doubt in my mind that that is that that is true. Uh, I've got a few other items somewhat in keeping that, with that, the, the stories that just do not get enough play. Uh, for example, recently it has been revealed that in the state of India, Uttar Pradesh, the most populous state of India, their death rate for COVID has only been 95 deaths per million, one of the lowest, if not the lowest, uh, for any large population on the planet. This is a population with a 1% vaccin vaccination rate. How have they done this? They've done it primarily through the use of ivermectin as a therapeutic. Right. It has limited if, and, and actually no side effects that would be uh, generally experienced. And yet America still actively resists this. I, I think, Bob, and I, I verbalized it this way, and I, it may seem too dramatic, but I think what we're talking about is murder. Yep. When you willfully withhold a therapeutic that could save thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of lives, and you willfully do that for political uh, gain or profit gain, I think it can only be described with that word. It is murder, Bob. I couldn't agree more. I just, you know, and what I had about hydroxychloroquine as well. I mean, there, there are therapeutics that are out there that have absolutely been uh, verboten in, in the United States of America because of pushing the vaccines. And uh, any doctor or anybody that stands up for this and says that this is something we should pay attention to uh, it gets, gets censored and uh, you know threatened with all kinds of losing your license and all kinds of things that we are this has all been so politicized right now that it's just undercut the confidence that we have in our healthcare system. I'm talking about doctors. I'm talking about the CDC. Uh, I think all of us have to be asking questions about how do we get the help that we need. Well, I think we've lost all confidence because of their actions in our theoretic experts. I think we've lost uh, almost all confidence in the of the federal government. And this this is this is a shame. These are people that that are there. We should be able to rely on them. I mean, we may disagree with them, but we have to at least feel that they're giving us the best information that is available. Right. Very few Americans think that is taking place right now. Right. In keeping with what I just mentioned about the uh, ivermectin and India. It's somewhat related, but it may be very related. Uh, I mentioned this the last time we were on there. The inexplicable increase in deaths of those from 18 to 64. Right. It is up 40 percent in the third quarter of uh, of, of 2020, uh, 2021. These numbers are uh, once in a lifetime numbers. They they never occur. A 40 percent increase is is dramatic. These numbers uh, coincide with the introduction of the vaccine for that age population. The 18 to 64s were a secondary uh, administered um, uh, vaccine group, uh, and the increase in death in that group coincided with their being vaccinated. I can't make the absolute case that uh, that is true, but I think sometimes uh, with these cause and effect, uh, the, there's a correlations to start with, but they become cause and effect under, under subsequent investigation. All of the information about this increased death level uh, has now been confirmed in multiple sources. As a matter of fact, the CDC itself has now confirmed that this, uh, these death numbers are in fact absolutely accurate. And uh, I, can, I can say by my research that there's been almost no investigation that has been prompted uh, to explain why this is incredible. It's not just a normal statistical, statistical variation, up or down a couple of standard deviations. This is an incredible movement of numbers that needs explanation, Bob. Well, and not only explanation, but investigation, and it certainly needs to be investigated. I, I, I believe it will. And unfortunately, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind fine. I'm hopeful that in after 22, 22 elections, there will be subcommittee meetings on some of these issues. There are so many right now that need, need to be investigated. Uh, the uh, This administration has shut down free speech in any way it possibly can in order to support uh, policies that, quite frankly, are untenable in terms of our freedoms and uh, our way of life. I mean, there's no doubt about that, Bob. And you mentioned the 2022 midterms. 
certainly I think uh, if there are legal elections, and I think that is uh, always in doubt, uh, I think the Republicans will, will sweep the House, uh, they'll increase their numbers dramatically, and I think they will take a substantial uh, plurality in, in the Senate. Uh, where my doubt lies is not in the, uh, the, the potential of a legal vote, but will we have a legal vote? I think that question is in serious doubt around the country, uh, particularly in the blue and purple states, uh, in some of the red states to a certain extent. Uh, but I think this, there's been very little done uh, to undo the damages of the illegal elections of 2020. Uh, Trump's claims of illegality have been dismissed and, and, and ballyhooed. Uh, and yet there is no reason to believe that those elections were legal or that the election of Joe Biden took place by, by legal means, Bob. And yet we're going into 2022 with those same mechanics in place for the most part. You're absolutely right. Andrew Jopp, again, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. I would love to continue this conversation, but unfortunately we're out of time, Andy. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow we've got great guests, including Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Uh, Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Seton Miley, the President of Less Government. And Bill Barnett, the former mayor of Naples, will give us an eye on what's happening here locally. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.